If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, we're going to begin in verse 27. We're going to work our way into chapter 20, down through verse 16 this morning. And you'll remember in Matthew 19, Jesus is is days away from the cross. Chapter 21 is the triumphal entry. He'll set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, But in chapters 19 and 20, he's giving some final lessons to the disciples uh, prior to heading towards Jerusalem. And these two lessons are incredibly important. They're critical to the life of the disciples and the beginning of the church. They're critical to us as well. And those questions are, those lessons are, how do I get into the kingdom? What does it take to have entrance into the kingdom of heaven? And the second question is, what do I get on the other side? What are the rewards of kingdom service and kingdom entrance? And with those two things in mind, let's just pray together and then we'll work our way into this text. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we pray that you'd bless the study of it. We know this morning we are dependent upon you. Not one person here, including myself, needs to hear from me, but we are desperate to hear from you. So God, I pray that I would in no way um, confuse or complicate that which you've made incredibly simple. Lord, we ask you to speak by means of your word to draw all of us to yourself, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week was that first um, question, that first lesson, how do I get in? And you'll remember the children and the rich young ruler, and we saw this incredibly simple principle that anyone, Jesus says, anyone can enter into the kingdom of heaven, anyone can come to me, so long as they're willing to admit that they bring nothing to the table and that they're a sinner, and so long as they're willing to admit that Christ is their only means of salvation. So anyone can come. But you got to come in humility. you got to come understanding you're a sinner and Christ is the only way. And then on the other side, no one can get in if they're trusting in their own self-righteousness. If you're trusting in you, if you're trusting in your good work, there is no entrance into the kingdom. So anyone can come so long as you admit you're a sinner. No one can come if you're coming on the basis of your righteousness. So our entrance into the kingdom, our relationship with Christ, it's mercy-based, not merit-based. Our entrance into the kingdom is not based on what we earned or what we did. It's based on what Christ has done for us, as Ephesians 2, 4 says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Aren't you glad this morning that our salvation is based on the mercy of God and not the basis of our own merits? Amen? He did all the work. And then we simply admit we're a sinner and we trust in him and he imputes to us the righteousness of God. But in verse 27, Peter's got a question. That's how we get in. Peter's question is, what do we get? And he just heard Jesus tell this rich young ruler, if you sell everything, you'll have treasure in heaven. And Peter's thinking, we got here long before that guy did. And we volunteered. We weren't even commanded. And we gave up everything. What do we get? So look at verse 27. Then Peter said to him, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? A pretty fleshly question, but certainly an honest one. I think it's the question that all the disciples are thinking, but only Peter is bold enough to ask. What do we get? What's in it for us? 
Well, look at verse 28. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus talks about the regeneration here. Literally, that means new beginning. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. It's the second coming of Christ. That in the second coming of Christ, there will be a redeemed heaven and a redeemed earth. And Christ will rule and reign. It'll be glorious. But he says to the apostles, you 12 guys, obviously minus Judas, they're going to add Matthias. So you 12 guys, you're going to reign over a redeemed Israel. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? There's a lot of eschatology there that we don't have time to go into today. But the more important verse for us anyway is verse 29. And he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and inherit eternal life. He says, every one of you, not just the disciples, but every one of you who turns away from the things of this world and turns to Christ alone as the only means of salvation, that you give yourself completely to Christ and completely to his mission, and you labor for him and you serve him, even though as sometimes we see, we see no immediate return on our efforts, no immediate results, and sometimes it costs us, and we have brothers and sisters in Christ who it costs them everything including their life, he says, those of you who have left all this and trusted in me completely and served me alone, when you get to the regeneration, when the second coming occurs, you will receive many times as much. Many times as much. And then even the greater blessing is he says, you will have eternal life. He says, you In the second coming, you will get to experience fully what you've trusted in by faith today. That you will get to exist in the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever. Now doesn't that sound good? Who is the one we love? Jesus. Who have we trusted in? Christ. Who do we long to know? Christ. One day we'll see him face to face and we will exist with him eternally in this glorious place of heaven where he rules and he reigns. What makes heaven heaven? Heaven is heaven because that's where Jesus is and he is all that we really want. But Jesus does here present to us this idea, this truth that we will be rewarded. That there will be something called the Bema judgment It's the final exam for all believers. That all of us who have trusted in Christ will face this Bema judgment, this final exam. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in 2 Corinthians 5. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So all of us who have believed in Christ, who have turned away from the things of the world and trusted in Christ, we will be judged, will not be judged on the basis of our sin because our sin was judged at Calvary and our sins have been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but our deeds will be judged. And scripture seems to indicate that there will be degrees of rewards. That this is not Marxism, this is not socialism, that there's just some flat rate And it doesn't really matter what you do. 
Now, Scripture gives this idea that there are some levels to the rewards, but the problem is it doesn't go into detail about that. He doesn't say that you win 100 people to faith in Christ, you make the B team. You lead 200 to faith in Christ, you make the A list. 250, you get A list preferred. This is not a frequent flyer program. He simply says to us, many times as much. Now, why doesn't he go into great detail? Why doesn't scripture go into great detail about these rewards? Because the basis of my relationship with Christ is not the merits. The basis of my relationship with Christ is his amazing mercy. That the rewards aren't the basis of my service to him. I'm not keeping a tally of all the things I've done and the sacrifices I've made, expecting a just recompense at the end. No, when we gave our life to Christ, we were just overwhelmed that God would love us, that God would love me as sinful as I am, that he would send his son Jesus to die on a cross for my sins. And in light of his great grace and mercy, I offered all of my life in accordance with Romans chapter 12. Therefore, in light of his abundant mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies. We offered our life to him. There was no contract with God. It wasn't as though when we came to faith in Christ, we said, well... Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you give me this at the end. So let's drop a contract here. Make sure I know the job description. And when I get to the end, I'm expecting this. No way. No, we were overwhelmed by his grace and we trusted him and we gave him all of our life. That the basis of our relationship with Jesus is not our merits that we've earned or expect to get. It's the mercy that he's extended to us. But the problem is, for a lot of people, as they move forward in their relationship with Christ, even though they know they got saved by grace and their salvation came by mercy, as they move forward, they suddenly want a merit-based relationship. See, that was the danger of the disciples. We're expecting a little more because we got here first. And they're forgetting that they didn't deserve any of this in the first place. But we think we should be first. We think we should get a little more. And there's a great danger there, which is why Jesus warns them in verse 30. Look at what he says. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He says, if your attitude is that I should be first, because I've done more than that guy over there. If that's your attitude, you might just find out that you're last. But if your attitude is I ought to be last, that I don't deserve anything, and I'm just going to give all of my life to him, you might just find out you're first. Jesus is saying that my people, my people are not the kinds of people who, who go around thinking about what they should be getting. No, my people are the kind of people who can't believe what they've already received through faith in Jesus Christ. That we are saved by the mercy of God and we serve him out of the mercy that he's already extended to us. And just so that we understand the point, Jesus tells us a story. So look in chapter 20 verse 1. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So if you can picture this... um, I know this probably still occurs in parts of our country, but certainly when we were in Peru, this still occurs in all the little cities that we visited, that uh, the men will get up very early in the morning before the sun comes up, and they will gather at a 
certain location and they're just hoping that somebody will come along and hire them. So they gather up at this particular location and very early. And in fact, uh, that was the prayer request of some of the families that we were with, that uh, the men oftentimes wouldn't be at the home when we go to visit the home and we'd ask them about their husband. should pray for him. We're hoping that he gets work today. And so you can, you can imagine this. That's kind of the picture here. All these guys have gathered up hoping to get work. In verse 2, it says, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And you'll notice there, he says, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius. In other words, these are contract workers. They are contracting with the landowner for a guaranteed payment at the end of the day. These are the guys, they they say, what's the job description? I want to know the job description. Okay, I'll agree to that, and I'm agreeing to it on the basis that when I do that job description, at the end of this, I'm going to get this amount. So they are merit-based in their relationship with the landowner. But then look at verse 3. And he went out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever's right, I'll give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour, meaning noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard also. So you've really kind of got two groups of people here. That first group that I just referenced, the contract workers, they have a merit-based relationship with the landowner. But these four other groups, if you'll notice, they got no contract. These are the guys that have been picked over. These are the guys who no one else wants. They brought nothing to the table. They, They probably aren't even expecting to get work. And it's not as though they're lazy. It's not like they showed up at noon and they missed out on the earlier opportunities. No, it's just that nobody wanted them. Nobody hired them originally. So when this guy comes along later in the day, they can't even believe that the landowner wants him. They can't believe that he would give them the opportunity to work. They're just praising God for the opportunity to provide for their families. And so there's no contract here. He says, I'll give you whatever's right. No contract. They're just trusting that this man is good and that he's generous and he'll take care of us. And whatever we receive, it's going to be more than we expected and is certainly more than we deserve. Huge difference between these two groups. You've got contract workers. You've got merit-based workers with an entitlement mentality. We deserve this, this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to get. And you've got a second group that's not merit-based. They are mercy-based, and they have a heart of gratitude. They can't believe that they even get the opportunity. If you want to think about this in terms of an analogy, imagine hiring a guy to cut your grass, and the guy shows up, says, okay, I want an exact job description of what you're asking me to do. You're just asking me to cut the grass. Yes, that's all I'm asking you to do. I'm going to cut the grass. Okay. And when I get done, I got the job description now. I'm expecting to get $40 at the end of the deal. We have an agreement. Yeah, okay, we got an agreement. You come back a little later, you find there's this section of your grass that hadn't been mowed. And you ask him, well, why didn't you cut that section? Well, the, the garden hose was out there in the way. Well, just move the garden hose. Well, that's not in the job description. You didn't hire me to move garden hoses. You hired me to cut grass, and so I'm just doing what what the contract says. That's the merit-based, folks. The mercy-based, they're the guys who, boy, I need work, and I need to provide for my family. And this guy, you're going to give me an opportunity to cut your grass? 
I can't believe I even, don't even worry. I just trust that you're going to pay me something. And that's the guy who not only cuts the grass, but he trims the hedges. And he makes sure that all the grass clippings are clean and picked up. That's the guys who are mercy-based. Well, these two groups of people, 6 p.m. rolls around. It's time for payment. It's payment time. In Jewish culture, they would always pay at the end of the day. That's what God told you to do. So you made sure you provided for your people. You made a payment at the end of the day. So 6 p.m. rolls around. Look at verses 8 through 12. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. So picture this, he's lined up all the workers. The recently hired guys are at the front of the line. The earliest workers, they're at the back of the line. And it's interesting because you think in your mind, why didn't he just start out with the earliest workers first and then they would have never known what the other guys got paid but he does this to make a point. All right, so you've got the recently hired at the front, the earliest at the back, and he starts handing out the paychecks. And the 5 p.m. guys, they're still fresh and energetic. They've only worked for an hour. No sweat dripping from their bow. They still, still smell good. They're looking good. Hands them a denarius. And a denarius was, was a generous wage for a day's worth of work. That's a good wage. Hands them a denarius. He begins to work his way down the line, handing a denarius to the 3 p.m. workers and the noon workers. And the earliest workers, what are they thinking? If those guys are getting a denarius, we've worked all day long. I can't imagine what the payment's going to be for us. Boy, we're getting ready to get a huge payday. This guy's going to give us a whole lot. And the master comes to them and hands them a denarius. And they are furious. And do you know what they're thinking? They're probably thinking the same thing that you and I would be thinking if we were in their shoes. And what sometimes goes through our mind, and what is that? That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, how will the master respond? Look at verse 13. But he answered and said to them, said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? In other words, I've been faithful. Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? In other words, he's saying to these guys, are you upset with my generosity? Literally, do you, do you, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you not like my mercy-based system? To which they were probably thinking, No. I don't like your mercy-based system. I want a merit-based system. I want what I've earned. I want what I deserve. I, I want what is fair. Can I ask you this morning, have you ever said that to God? Have you ever been in a situation where you were doing your best to follow God, you were doing your best to walk in obedience, and things didn't work out as you expected you didn't get what you wanted, and you said to God, that's not fair. And what makes it worse is that oftentimes you look at some other yahoo, some Johnny come lately, and everything seems to be working out perfectly for him. And suddenly you become the blessing police, don't you? <laughs> Lord, I don't know if you know, but he ain't been in church for three weeks. 
I don't know what you're doing giving that to him. Maybe you don't know. He ain't a real good dude. And I've been doing good. I've been working well with you. What makes it worse is social media. (laughs) A perpetual temptation to jealousy, isn't it? I wish I had their job. I wish I could go on vacations like them. I wish wish my kids woke up in the morning singing hymns and making breakfast. (laughs) You notice they never put the bad things on there, do they? And it isn't so much that we're upset with what we have. It's just that we see others who have so much more. And we end up saying to God, that's not fair. Why do they get that and I only get this? And what we're really saying to God is, I don't like your mercy-based system. I want a merit-based system. I want what I deserve. I want what I've earned. And I want to be clear with you this morning, that is not a discussion or an argument that you want to have with God. I don't think you want to go there. Because if God gave us what we truly deserved, we'd all be in big trouble. See, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. All that God really owes any of us is death and hell. God is a debtor to no man and no woman. And anything we receive beyond death and hell is nothing more than the mercy and grace of God. And one of the great dangers of the Christian life is that we would get so far removed from the moment of salvation that we start thinking about all the things we've done for God and all the years we've sought to follow him and all the things we've given up and we would start to think that God owes us something. And we know that our salvation is based on mercy, but as we move forward, we suddenly want a merit-based rewards program. God, I've done this, and I think I deserve that. And grace goes sour in our life, and we become bitter and grumpy and self-centered Christians who can't stand it when God blesses another individual. You see, the real point of this story is that we're all intended to identify with the 11th hour workers The 11th hour workers were the the guys who got picked over because they weren't the most impressive. They didn't bring anything to the table. They weren't that handsome. They weren't that strong. And so they got picked over. And it was only based on the mercy of the landowner that he would reach out to them in generosity and save them and give to them a new life and an opportunity to serve him and the promise that at the end of the day there would be something that came to them. And folks, that's you and me. Despite all of our good works and our religious deeds, we weren't that good in comparison to God. We brought nothing to the table. God owed us nothing. All that we deserved was death. And yet God reached into our life on the basis of his mercy and he loved us and he saved us and he raised us up and he gave us a mission. He gave us work to do, amen? That one of the great blessings of knowing God is not just salvation and redemption, it's the opportunity to work for him, to have a mission and meaning and purpose to life and a promise that when the day for labor was over, we would receive many times as much an eternal life. 
the opportunity to exist in the glorious presence of Christ forever. That's us. And we didn't contract with God. In that moment of salvation, we just trusted in him and we trusted in his grace and mercy. Can I ask you this morning, what's the basis of your relationship with God? Is it merit-based or is it mercy-based? And if the motivation of your service to God is based on merits and fairness, can I tell you, it always leads to bitterness. It always leads to jealousy. It leads to anger and resentment because God is generous and God is abundantly merciful. But I'm here to tell you, God is not always fair. And I don't pretend to understand why God gives some things to some people and withholds things from others. I'm not sure why some people go through great trials and others do not. I don't understand those things. But what I cannot question, what I do not question, is the abundant mercy and grace of God. And if I ever begin to doubt the grace of God and the generosity of God, when I come to those moments in life, when I say in my heart, that's not fair, I simply look to the cross. And I'm reminded and I'm grateful that God is not fair. Because let me tell you what's not fair. What's not fair is to be God and to give up the glory of heaven and to live the life we could never live and to die the death we should have and to do all the work and then extend to us the rewards. That's not fair. But I'm grateful that God loved me anyway. And he gave to me salvation, not on the basis of my merits, but on the basis of his mercy. And on the basis of his mercy, I'm able to move forward in life with an attitude of gratitude and joy knowing that every day that God gives me is a gift from God, and even the bad days work together for my good. And instead of viewing life as a series of disappointments where on one occasion after another, I'm not given the treatment that I deserve. I experience life as a gift of God's grace. And whenever God blesses another individual, praise be to God because it's just another expression of the reality that we serve and worship a generous God. And instead of trying to figure out what God is doing in another person's life, I'll be reminded that God has always been faithful to me. God has always delivered on his promises. He has never failed to give me wisdom when I asked him for it. He's never failed to take the bad things of my life and sometimes the mistakes of my life and use them to sanctify me and grow me in my walk and relationship with him. And listen, I want to be clear. I do not want to diminish the fact that some of you this morning, you are going through trials and difficulties that I can't even begin to imagine. But surely even you today in the midst of your trials can look back and see that God has never, ever left you. He has always been with you. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to get to a place where grace grows sour in my life and I become a bitter, grumpy, self-centered Christian who begrudges the generosity of God. And so again, in verse 16, you see the repetition of this warning that he gave at the beginning of the parable. So the last shall be first, and the first last. And I want to encourage you, don't spend too much time trying to figure this phrase out. It'll drive you crazy. It almost drove me crazy this week. It's not a math problem. Jesus is simply saying that the kingdom of heaven is not like this world. It's not merit-based. It's not based on seniority. It's not based on time. This is not a rewards program. Some of you came to faith in Christ very late in life. And maybe your greatest regret today is that you didn't come to know Christ sooner. Can I tell you today, it's not necessarily what you do. It's why you do what you do that matters to God. It's your heart that God wants. Now, I often am reminded that one day I'll be judged. And I keep this picture in my mind of one day Christ, me getting to heaven, And Christ putting his arm around me. And there will be no comparison to other people. Listen to me. In that moment, it's not what you've done in comparison to somebody else. It's just you and Jesus. It's just you and Jesus alone. And you'll not be judged for what you didn't have. He's going to judge you for what he gave you. Just you. And he'll say, Chad, let's see how you did. How much of your life was about you and your glory? How much of your life was lived for me and my glory? I don't know about you, but I don't want to get that moment and not have anything. You see, we're to be a people who go through life understanding that we ought to be last. And we can't believe what we've been given. We can't believe that Jesus would love us and save us and promise of heaven and I can't believe that I get to be used by him in a mission that can't be stopped in a purpose that is bigger than me and Jesus says those are the kinds of people that are great in my kingdom it's like the widow's might you remember the widow's might Jesus is in the temple he's been questioned I picture Jesus it's the final week of his life it's probably about Tuesday Tuesday of his final week and he's exhausted and he's in the temple and he takes a rest and he's in that area where they do the giving and they have these brass trumpets and you would throw in your coins and the really rich people would bring a whole bunch of coins to let everybody know we're really wealthy and we're really important to God. And so they'd make a whole bunch of noise. And then there's this widow that walks up and she takes a little mite. It wouldn't even have begun to make a noise in the trumpet and she throws it in and Jesus says, hey guys, come here. You see that woman right there? She gave more than anybody else. Disciple, no way. There's no way that woman, we don't even know her name. We don't even know who she is. I don't even know if she put anything in. Jesus said she gave more than anybody else because she gave all that she had. Listen, it's not how much, it's not how long. It's about your heart. 
That's greatness. Those are the people who are first in my kingdom. On the other hand, the guy who goes through life thinking that he should be first. I've done more than anybody else. I've sacrificed. I've kept a tally of all the things that I have done. Always thinking about what they deserve and what they're not getting. That is the person who is last. And we have to fight this temptation to thinking about life through the lens of fairness, don't we? We have to fight this. Because it's kind of ingrained in us. I don't think anybody teaches kids to say, that's not fair. But they say it, don't they? And I know parents that have withheld something that they deeply wanted to give to one child, or maybe it was a grandchild, and they said, boy, I just couldn't give it to them because I knew that this other one would throw a fit because they would say it's not fair. And one of the things, and I'm not necessarily saying that's bad, don't mishear me, but one of the things that we've sought to do with Wyatt and Walker is to tell them very clearly and be upfront that we will not always be fair. We're going to try. But sometimes I'm going to do things for Walker that I don't do for Wyatt. Because Walker's going to have different needs than Wyatt has. And sometimes I'm going to do things for Wyatt that I don't do for Walker. I'm going to do my best to be fair, but it probably won't always be fair. But they're just going to have to trust me that I love them with all my heart. And they have to trust that I'm always going to err towards the side of generosity. That should be how we operate with God. That God, I'm not always going to get what I want. And I'm not always going to get what I think I deserve. But I know this, you love me. And I know you're gracious. And if I ever begin to doubt that, I only have need to look to the cross. And I trust that in the end, I'll receive many times as much. God does not operate on the basis of merits or fairness. He operates on the basis of mercy. God is a generous God. He is good. He dispenses his blessings as he sees fit. And when we operate out of his mercy, when we see God for the generous, gracious, and merciful God that he is, I think we might just find that our life is a whole lot sweeter than we might think it is. As we close, just let me, you might be asking, how do I know if I'm moving towards a merit-based mentality? Let me just give you two questions you ought to ask yourself. Good self-evaluation questions. Number one, how do you respond when God blesses other people in your life? How do you respond when God blesses other people in your life? You know, the picture of this is the prodigal son. You remember the older brother in the prodigal son story? This guy wastes all his life on loose living. And he gets the fattened calf and gets the ring and the robe. What's the deal with that? That's not fair. It's a brother who's gotten to a place where grace has gone sour in his life and he's forgotten the abundant blessing of living under the father's roof. And he can't rejoice with the fact that his brother who was lost has now been found. Listen to me. When you get to a place where you start saying, that person that made a deathbed confession, that really chaps me. You know, get to the end and listen, if that's your heart, I think you've missed the whole point.
because you didn't deserve the grace of God any more than that person who prayed at the very end. And I'll guarantee you that guy who prayed at the end, he would give anything to be able to go back and receive Christ at an earlier time. And when we can't rejoice with another brother or sister who God blesses, you know, we make two real errors. Number one, we make the error of thinking that if I had what they had, then I'd be happy. <laughs> Isn't that what we start thinking? If I just had what they had, then I'd be happy. And the second mistake follows out of that because what we're really doing right there is we're saying that the key to my contentedness is out there and it's not in here. Listen, contentment and peace and joy comes from the fact that I know Jesus. You remember what Paul said? I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through Christ. He says it doesn't matter what God gives me or doesn't give me as long as I got Jesus. I'm going to be just fine. Listen, the real sign of spiritual maturity is when you can rejoice with your brothers and sisters in Christ whom God has blessed. And then second question I would ask you this morning is how do you respond when God doesn't give you what you think you deserve? How do you respond when it doesn't work out like you hoped it would? Do you pout? I'll tell you, I've pouted. My boys aren't the only ones who have said that's not fair. Boy, you ask my wife, I can pout like the best of them. You ever pouted about what you didn't get? What you thought you deserved? Listen. The real sign of understanding the mercy of God is when things don't go our way and God doesn't give us what we deserve, instead of pouting, we praise a God whose plan is perfect and knows what we need better than we know what we need. Amen? And if you're struggling with any of this today, the cure is simple. Look to the cross. When you look to the cross, you'll be reminded... Boy, I sure am glad God's not a God who's always fair. Because I didn't deserve anything but death and hell. And Christ came for me. And he's given me grace and salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. That you are a God of grace. And a God who is abundantly abundantly merciful. And Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know your grace, that doesn't know your mercy, never trusted in you, God, I pray today they would see that no matter how good they may think they are in comparison to other people, that in light of you, they fall dramatically short, that we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And I pray that they would see the depth of their own sin. But more than this, I pray that they'd see the beauty of their Savior, Jesus, and that they would trust in you with all their heart. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray, I pray that grace wouldn't go sour in our lives and we'd get to a place where we would somehow want a merit-based system instead of a mercy-based system. God, I pray that we would never get over the fact that you've saved us. We'd never get over the cross and what you've given to us in Christ. 
and out of a spirit of gratitude, we would worship you with all of our lives and that people would see in us that the peace and the joy we know doesn't come because we have perfect health. And the joy and the peace that we know doesn't come because we've got a big bank account. That we have joy and we have peace and we have contentment because we know Christ. And we're secure in him by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God's leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. We'll have pastors here at the front who would love to talk with you and love to pray with you. Maybe there's some other issue in your life you'd like to pray about this morning. You'd like a pastor to pray with you. Maybe you just want to pray here at the altar. This is your time. Know this morning, you'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.